Greetings, and welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show, coming at you from Moray Bay Studios, where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibilities. If you happen to be in South Florida, you may be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. My guest today is Reed Coverdale. Reed is a trucker, a gun hacker, meme lord, podcast host, noted 9-11 conspiracy theory denier, and a man with a mustache. Reed, welcome to The Matt Asher Show. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's great to have you here. Let's start by talking about that first one. What is trucking? I am a heavy equipment uh, truck driver, so I just move big excavators, loaders, mining equipment, oversized, random loads of you know all sorts um i'm not doing box trucks or uh reefer trailers or anything like that pretty much exclusively big scary things that would probably scare the heck out of most people if they had to get behind the wheel so you're picking those up and are you moving them long distances or just to a a job site um i mean sometimes long distance it really depends sometimes i'll be local in utah for several days in a row and then other times i'll be uh you know i'll just be gone my entire uh you know my entire work period i won't come home i'll be gone for 10 days or something and then come back i might take something to california or something way down in new mexico or way up in idaho or montana just kind of depends and what does that look like then in terms of your work schedule? Is it something that you have control over or is it just things fall in your lap and then you you take them? So I'm a company driver, so I don't own the truck. Um, I, I'm just an employee. Uh, and it's pretty easy because I don't have to, you know, I don't have to pay for fuel. I don't have to pay for maintenance. Uh, I don't even have to really organize any of my own permits aside from measuring the load and then calling it in. Um, My boss takes care of all of that. Uh, But then, you know, the consequence of that is you just have to work whenever he needs you to. So um, I'm not really in charge of my schedule per se, but when I'm on the road, like I, I am in charge of figuring out how far I can make it, you know, what makes sense uh, as far as how many hours I'm going to work. So I sort of make my own schedule, I guess you could say, but I'm also, you know, doing what he needs me to do and getting it, you know, getting the stuff moved on the deadlines that he needs. Got it. So every culture seems to have their way of doing status or, you know, social hierarchy, whatever you want to call it. What does that look like within your industry? Does it mean something that you're working for a company versus owning your own truck? Or does that divide come down on some other kind of metric or, or you know, feature of being a truck driver? There's there's like business owners who are independent operators who own their own business, own their own truck, and they just do whatever they want to. And then there's owner operators where you may own the truck, 
but you work for a company. So, you know, you could own your own tractor, but you're always hauling for prime or something like that. And then there's people like me who are just straight up employees of the company. We don't own anything. We just uh, get in the truck and drive it. Uh, so yeah, the uh, independent operators are the, you know, the, the top of the pack there. Uh, but I would say in general, I mean, you don't necessarily know if someone's an independent operator or if they're um, a company driver. I mean, if you see someone driving a Walmart truck, you'd know they're a company driver. But like the truck I drive, I've been asked many times by people are, do you own this truck? Is this you? You know, is this your business? I'm like, no, I've worked for another guy. Um, when it comes to the hierarchy on the road, I would say, you know, I'm, we're kind of at the top, the, the heavy haul guys, we're moving all the weird stuff, the windmill turbines and the giant excavators, things like that. And then, you know, the hazmat and flatbedders, they're probably next there. And then if you're just driving a hazmat being dangerous materials, then yeah, hazardous materials, um, you know, like gasoline or propane or whatever. Uh, and then flat bedding is, you know, a little bit more elite too, because it's not just in a container. You have to strap everything down on the deck. And um, I've done a little bit of that in the past. And then uh, the, the straight up freight shipping, like, you know, FedEx, Walmart, stuff like that. That's pretty much the bottom of the barrel. But, you know, everyone's got to start somewhere. So um, I don't really, I mean, it does feel cool when you're driving something 20 feet wide, 16 feet tall going down the highway and then you just see this guy in a little box truck who's just gotten his CDL. It, it does feel impressive, but I try to always remember where I came from and, you know, we're all, we're all keeping the country moving. So what is the the weirdest or most interesting thing that you've hauled? Um, lately I've been moving giant dump truck beds out of a mine so it's just the bed of the dump truck. And it's from these, you've probably seen videos of these huge trucks in the mines. Yeah. These are the ones with the tires that are way taller than any one person, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so the, the bed itself is about 28 feet wide. And then when it's sitting on the trailer, it's about 16 feet tall. So we have a pre-planned route that we have to drive these things because of width and height. Um, otherwise you'd not fit through, you know, under a bridge or whatever, or, you know, through a tight alleyway or something, but they're actually extremely easy to move because you have the highway patrol and they just shut down the entire road, push everyone out of your way. Um, but those are, those are pretty cool though. I mean, <laughs> you definitely get some people turning their heads as you drive by. Just as we're talking about the culture here in uh, in in that community, I imagine every community too has the topics that they are talking about. What is the talk in your business right now? What are people buzzing about when you're meeting other truckers? You know, there's a shortage right now, and you've always heard of the shortage forever, but I think it's been exaggerated in the past, and now it's real. Um, but it's not just the truck drivers. It's also people working at the ports, working at the distribution centers. Everything is backed up and it's really hard to get parts for trucks or parts for anything. But uh, that's something that's really hit our industry uh, specifically is if you have a DEF sensor that goes bad or you need a clutch replacement, you're waiting six or seven weeks now where you used to wait two or three days. So um, we're definitely seeing a backup in supplies. 
Um, and then I think a lot of people are probably wondering about this vaccine mandate that's just, you know, it hasn't officially been rolled out really, but you know, what that's going to look like and if it's going to be enforced, uh, that won't affect me because I work for a small company, but you know, if, if truck drivers start leaving like airline, you know, like the airline pilots and, uh, staff were threatening to like, that's gonna, I mean, people will die if you don't have trucks running for a couple of weeks, it starts getting really ugly in the cities. So, um, that's kind of the talk now is just like, what are they actually thinking they're going to get away with? And, um, yeah, what, you know, what our reaction will be to it, I guess, cause we've seen things going on in Australia and, um, you know, we're just wondering, is it really going to get like that here? So that's kind of the, the rumor circulating right now, I guess. I am talking with Reed Coverdale, a trucker and podcaster and Twitter poster, uh, fairly prolific. And I want to get to that comment that you mentioned about uh, people dying and the importance of the supply chain, though. First, I want to go back to even before the topic of the vaccine mandates. I've heard a lot of theories about the supply chain disruption up to this point. What do you think is causing things to be so backed up? Uh, It's probably several things, but... I think number one is people just aren't working because I mean, it's started right around the time everyone stopped working back in 2020 in like March and May, uh, you know, and at that time it was just fear of what the coronavirus was. Uh, but it seems since then what it has become is because people have not found it profitable to work because of inflation and stagnant wages, but also getting some sort of um, compensation, you know, being on the dole. So why go back to work? Um, And the combination of all those things has just led to, uh, you know, massive shortages of employees in every sector, not just truck driving, but uh you know all through this last winter and especially toward the spring and then the summer of this year like I, I would go to a truck uh stop somewhere in nevada or something and there would be nothing to eat you know i just have to go without eating for the night um and that type of stuff has become more and more common so i think it's just from people not working mostly And that doesn't seem to be setting aside again for the moment the uh, vaccine mandate impact that in and of itself doesn't seem to be resolving itself right now. Those kind of those conditions on the ground. No, I don't think so, because, you know, inflation is going up more and the incentives to work are going down, if anything. So there hasn't been an impetus to get people back out in the field. So, you know, things just keep deteriorating. One of the things I wondered about the most early on in the pandemic, especially when you were starting to hear stories about truckers not being able to use restrooms and other things like you mentioned of, you know, they can't get food, they can't go into restaurants um, early on. I, I wondered why truckers didn't just shut things down. They, you guys had the power at any moment to, you know, to end um, 
the the lockdowns and those policies by blockading or just refusing to work, but that didn't happen. Was there discussion in the community about doing that, about protesting, or was it seen more like we, you know, we need to do our part even if conditions um, have gone downhill for us? I think the. Uh... You know, we the lockdown phase has kind of passed. There are some states that are still doing it, but for the most part, most states are not actually locking down again like they did in 2020. Uh, it's nothing like what's going on in Australia, where you're literally under house arrest and you're under surveillance. And if the police call you and you don't use a facial recognition software within 15 minutes, they'll show up at your house where they're building camps to put unvaccinated people or infected people into. So that, I mean, that's kind of a little bit of a different scenario than we have here. But what about like early on when things, you know, what I heard a lot of reports of things being not so great for truckers as a result of the measures that were taken, but there didn't seem to be that much pushback from the truckers themselves. But maybe I just didn't see that because I, you know, I don't really have a connection to that community. Well, I was in between jobs until June of last year. So when I started in June, I mean, I ran into what you're talking about, truck stops being out of food, no restaurants being open, and it was a pain. But um, yeah, I think at that point, we were still looking at it as a civic duty to try to, you know, keep everybody fed and keep, you know, I mean, I move heavy equipment, so I wasn't moving toilet paper, or, you know, essential items or whatever, but I probably that was the mindset of the truckers at in the beginning. Cause you know, I don't think too many people were thinking this was a sinister thing at first. It was mostly like, Oh, wow, this is really bad. And maybe we're overreacting a little bit, but we just need to get through this and it'll be fine where, you know, what's going on in Australia now is so obviously nefarious it's not about health it's not about getting beyond a pandemic it's about control so i think if you saw those types of measures even i mean and even the vaccine mandate will probably be enough that you'll see a lot of truckers just quit so i, I think that type of thing could be coming soon but um in the beginning i think most people were just looking at it as okay we just got to get through this and you know it's on us to keep the stores stocked and keep people alive so we'll keep moving and i can't speak for everybody obviously and uh you know i i am a little bit of a loner i i'm not it's not i'm not in a diner every night with a bunch of truckers so i'm probably not the best truck driver to ask that to there are other guys who are always you know all 50 states and always in a diner every night, they would probably have a better answer to that than I would. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, but let's, let's now go into that, um, vaccine mandate thing and see what, what your thoughts are about that. I, I will note to add to what you said about Australia, they are now shooting unarmed protesters in the back with rubber bullets as they flee. So that's not, it's not an exaggeration what you're talking about there, about the, the conditions in that country. Now that we do have not an official vaccine mandate, but it seems like a lot of the companies are already reacting to the pressure uh, from the government, the, the idea that this is coming down down the pike, so to speak. What do you think the reaction is going to be? Uh, um, you know, what is the impact that that's going to have on the supply chain uh, as far as people's willingness to just keep trucking? I think uh, the airline industry is going to be a good test run. 
And I saw the uh, CEO of Southwest said that he's not going to be firing anybody over vaccination status today. I saw that on Twitter. So I, and by the way, I didn't actually make sure that was a reliable source. I just saw it circulating. So if that is true, I think that's a good sign. Um, if Southwest is willing to not enforce that, then, you know, hopefully other companies will follow. Um, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I've actually got a video that's premiering tomorrow that I did with Matt Kibbe on his show where I was saying that the biggest threat to liberty is comfort. And I think that this is such an overstep and it's, it's so blatantly authoritarian that enough people are going to resist it because they don't like it. I mean, if, if you can boil the frog slowly and pass things that you can convince people is for their greater good, then they're not going to resist them as much. But this, you know, I mean, the, in my opinion, the vaccine is mostly, uh, you know, mostly, or I shouldn't say mostly, but it's, it's not nearly as effective as they want us to believe it is. And a lot of people don't want it. And for a lot of people, there's probably nothing you could do to make them take it and to try to mandate it at, you know, such sweeping levels that the Biden administration wants to move forward with, I think is going to have uh, backlash and you'll just have massive non-compliance and people are willing to quit their jobs over it, I think. I'm wondering about that and, and how that plays out and how it plays out politically. Uh, maybe you could give a, a view. You mentioned that thing about people dying. I don't think people think uh, that much about the importance of the supply chain, and I guess, until it's too late. What does that scenario look like if things actually do shut down in a significant way? Well, so, you know, now it's DEF sensors and you know, parts for cars and parts for your oven and your microwave and your dishwasher and your washing machine. And, you know, those are the types of things that's hard to get right now because of the supply chain interruptions. So just bring it to more critical items. So, I mean, apparently toilet paper is a critical item. You, you could have fooled me with that one, you know, before. That, that was an odd one. It wasn't the one that I ran out to grab. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, just imagine, uh, you know, non-perishable food starts becoming really hard to get because that'll probably go before the perishable items because that's what everybody grabs first. Uh, and then eventually, you know, like daily, daily perishable groceries like eggs and milk and dairy products. And, you know, I mean, you're just, it's just going to become more and more imminent products that you use every day. Cause right now it's the ones you haven't really thought about before. And then you realize, wow, it's really hard to get this. This kind of takes a while. It's eventually going to be the things that you don't think about that you have on a daily basis. And, you know, so gasoline, um, you know, uh, heating oil for your home, um, you know, just stuff that you need that you're used to having at the snap of a finger that you won't have anymore. One of the the things I think about if that scenario begins to play out is what is the government's reaction to that beginning to happen? We've already seen evidence that 
when things go wrong, the government is going to look for a scapegoat. Well, the evidence for that is historical and very, very, uh, very long history of that. You know, the government doesn't want to admit that its policies caused a disaster. It's going to try to find some way to deflect the blame. And that attempt in and of itself is going to create some kind of a feedback loop. We're up against a a break here right now. But when we come back, I want to get your take on how you think the government will react if conditions worsen. And then maybe we'll move to the online and talk about memes and lolberts. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Show. I am talking with Reed Coverdale. He is a trucker just at the end of a long day hauling something very heavy, no doubt. And we were talking about, well, about collapse of some sort, about shortages, and if things get go really sideways and people can't get food and necessary things like medicine, what does that look like, not just in terms of what happens to people who cannot get access to those, but how do you think the government would react if things start to get really bad there on the ground? I mean, they'll probably react the way they always do, try to take more power and try to subjugate more private business to their, you know, to their jurisdiction. And I don't think it's the ironic thing about it is the reason that we've had these problems over the last year and a half is because of centralization, because we import so much and because our, you know, the way things are shipped, like they're, they're made in one place and then they're shipped to another place to uh, be put in certain containers and assembled a certain way and then shipped to another place. Um, if you live in the city, almost everything comes in from somewhere else. Um, you know, where if we actually lived a more decentralized lifestyle like we used to, then it wouldn't matter if this was happening because you could just preserve your own town, your own house, you know. Uh, so the, the Amish will be fine. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just, I, I think that the government will push for more centralization and more control, but it's so obviously the wrong direction. And I think even the average normal person is starting to see that because, I mean, the, the power grab and the lack of efficiency is so blatant um, that maybe that's not a bad thing that they'll actually start pushing for that. Because as I said earlier, when people are uncomfortable, they push back and the discomfort level is going to start getting higher when you can't get your own groceries anymore. And as they see the government, you know, make more mandates and grab more power and become less and less efficient, I think that it might be enough for them to, you know, push back and say, nope, enough, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, but it really just depends on how it all, you know, on how it all plays out, how it all falls together. Because um, I think rural places are just going to do better throughout this. Uh, it makes me wish I hadn't left New Hampshire and moved to Salt Lake City. You know, maybe maybe I should move back to the woods in New Hampshire. But uh, everyone who has their own gardens and knows how to hunt and, you know, has distribution plants for some product in their own town or state, like they're just going to do better than places that rely solely on imports. 
and they're not going to have as much government intervention. So it, it'll depend state by state, town by town, city by city, I think. I, for the listeners who don't know yet, I moved to the Florida Keys from Canada about nine months ago now and did so in part because if things got a little bit of rough, we're here on the water and that helps for fishing or whatever else. We have a little bit of, of land. It's easy to grow citrus here. And I'm not myself much of a a prepper, but I do think it is worth considering, and I do invite people to come down here to the lovely Keys, where we have still direct access from uh, for boats to come in and uh, and drop off goods and and some other advantages in terms of acquiring food if if we need to. But I, I want to get back to what you were saying about people being uncomfortable, and you know when people get uncomfortable, that often leads to political pressures. It could lead to political pressures that lead to change. It could also lead people to blame or scapegoat if the narrative, as it is constructed, impacts people to decide this is the group of people, whether it's truckers on strike or whatever else. People. <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe you've noticed that, right? Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm up in the air about whether if, if things do get very uncomfortable, if you have a situation where people go, oh, yeah, this is a government policy problem, or whether the folks who are pushing the narrative that most people read and are exposed to through all the different media are, you know, are, are going along with the narrative as presented. I guess that's a red-pilled question, right? Yeah, I mean, th this is why I have kind of tried to focus on the idea of uniting behind liberty, you know, so you might have someone who's a Republican um, who doesn't agree with you on everything, but they have some liberty values, and then you might have a Democrat who's the same way, um, and that there'll be different values, but they're liberty values. I think it's important to not be sectarian in these times, like, you know, some people want they don't want to form any coalitions they just want to isolate themselves and become the most rigid ideologues and be right about everything but never work with someone who agrees with them on something and i think that's what the establishment wants they want us to be sectarian divisive um purists who aren't willing to collaborate against them because the establishment sure isn't sectarian i mean they they will compromise everything to work with each other you know like right and left what does that mean in washington or you know conservative liberal it doesn't mean anything they'll they'll rub elbows and pass legislation to go to war raise spending spy on us more drone bomb some kids in afghanistan or whatever they'll they'll, they'll all uh, work together to do that but we won't work together to do anything so i think it's really important that we look at, you know, I, I guess you call it like class cohesion or something, trying to get the working class to realize who the enemy is here. Instead of, you know, getting divided over Mr. Potato Head. And, you know, that's, that's a that's an interestingly maybe Marxist way to look at the world for the, the for the listeners. The podcast that Reed has is called Natural Capitalist. Um, but that that's a very, I guess, a class based analysis there. Yeah, well, I think there's, you know, the, the political class, 
Um, it, it's not, it's not a wealth division. I mean, it would be because the, the establishment is much wealthier, but you could also have wealthy people who are opposed to the establishment. And, um, you know, when you have a government that has, you know, just put these oligarchs in power over you and over all of your livelihood, um, you know, they are, they're the enemy. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a classist argument, but it's not, um, you know, it's not an, it's not one of, you know, people of different economics. It's one of people who have solidified control over everything and people who are willing to just be against that, I think have to unite. One of the interesting ways that still exist to fight back other than, than strikes that are, that seem groups seem to be experimenting with right now is to post stuff online. You do a lot of posting on Twitter. What is the importance of memes? Uh, memes get a point across with very few or no words. Um, and they catch people's attention very quickly and they drive a point home and people will remember it because usually it's gotta be funny or shocking or something for somebody to notice it or for it to be worth posting. But that'll do a lot more to change someone's mind than an essay will because it's just, you know, a snap of the finger and it just instantly makes sense. You just see the inconsistency or the hypocrisy that the meme is pointing out and it sticks with you. Um, and, you know, images really have a lot more power than uh, written words, I think. So I, th I think that's why they're so effective. One of the interesting things to me in this moment is how much the media we consume has kind of bifurcated the tolerance for very long-form conversations, in part ones like this or even longer, like a Joe Rogan-style interview, seems to be way up. People are listening to very long discussions that are complex, nuanced. And then at the same time, the rise of the kind of instant gratification media has has also happened. So people are also consuming a lot of media that comes in the form of a tweet or a meme where the impact is immediate and visceral. And then they're, you know, they're scrolling on to the next 10 second video or the next meme. And you're, you know, you're when you're working there on Twitter, working sort of when you're playing on Twitter, you are you're working at that end of the spectrum, the kind of get in before the brain can almost kick in and analyze uh, what they're seeing. No. Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to fight fire with fire a little bit. So uh, I would love people to come watch my YouTube videos where I talk with someone for an hour but I've realized that Twitter is really only a good place to catch people's attention. That's really all it's good for. So you can do that without pretending to be something you're not. Like you can still stick to your principles and everything you say can be 100% consistent. But sometimes you got to be a little hyperbolic or a little flashy or a little, um, you know, sometimes it's straw man's a little bit because you're not, you're not giving a well thought out long form essay it's just a few words but if you can really point out an inconsistency or a lie or something hilarious about the state of affairs people see it and they're like oh wow that's funny or wow that's true i want to hear more of this so then they follow you 
and then they like a lot of your takes and then they find out, oh, he has a YouTube channel. I actually want to see what this guy is about. Then you can bring them into that long form discussion area. But unfortunately, because everyone's um, attention spans are so short and they are for instant gratification, that's how you have to hook them. So that's the bait. And then hopefully they go in for the longer form commentary discussion and other things that you've posted. Part of that bait seems to be creating um, not just the memes, but a really an entire vocabulary. Uh, maybe we could go through some of those or and see, explain what those are. Well, at any rate, what is a lolbert? Um, well, it depends on who you talk to, but a lolbert is though the way I've heard Pete Quinones describe a Lobert is someone who is already living in Ancapistan. So if you talk about like, hey, what did we do to get from here to there? They'll just, you know, call you a statist or say that you're not being principled or whatever. Uh, so like, you know, if you want to, if you want to get to a place where all drugs are legal, but there's legislation that comes through to just legalize marijuana and you vote for it. You know, some Lulberts will call you a status because you didn't vote for something that would legalize all drugs. And it's like, well, you have to move the needle in that direction. They're not going to they're not going to put a bill before Congress that says make the United States and Capistan like you have to work incrementally, move things in that direction. I think Lulbert also has a connotation of being you know, just completely socially unaware of what's going on and just having extremely dumb, generic takes instead of reading the room. Uh, so if, let's, let's say, uh, you know, in this current situation, um, you know, vaccine mandates are kind of a huge deal that are really violating personal liberty. But if you're a Lulbert, you might care more right now about, getting rid of occupational licensing or legalizing sex work or um, getting rid of driver's licenses. You'd call that type of person a Lulbert because it's like, dude, come on, get with the times, realize what's important. That doesn't mean you don't talk about those other things anymore. You view them as not important, but it's like, you know, let's prioritize here and let's focus on what really matters. Pete was one of the first guests I had on the podcast. This was before it was also the radio show. So if listeners want to go to mattasher.com and uh, scroll back, they can find that episode uh, along with many others. And Kapistan would be the theoretical utopia where everyone can live free and no government exists, right? Yeah, it would be all voluntary exchange, uh, private property, uh, freedom of association, no coercion. One of the other terms that uh, I should definitely ask you about is burr, uh, the, uh, the, like, the, usually in terms of a money printer, but I, you're not, I don't think you're using it that way. What is yeah. that term? <laughs> well, I made a video a couple of years ago now. It, it, it's weird. I put it out, I think in November of 2019, but it didn't take off until July of 2020. I'm bump firing an M1 Garand, a 30-06-8 round M1 Garand. And I'm in the video, I'm just making fun of the idea that 
you know, legislating away bump stocks or certain types of pistol grips or whatever is going to make it so you can't shoot a gun at a certain rate of fire. And, you know, since the since the uh, gun is rattling off so quickly, it sounds kind of like so you've always seen the money printer go burr meme so i just decided oh i'll just do grand go burr instead and uh it's my pin to tweet the the video where i'm shooting the grand so most people can connect it i think but yeah i thought it was kind of funny the money printer go burr thing is related to the fact that the fed since the beginning of this crisis and well before that has been printing money at an extraordinary rate and that is i think one of those pieces of the puzzle that leads to the you know the the inflation and the inability of people to buy the basic things that they need. We need to take a break here. When we come back, um, shift things up a little bit, and maybe we'll do a little bit of rapid-fire Q&A and go from there. In your grill, trying to get you to a hotel. You must be a football coach. The way you got me playing the field. So, baby, give me Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM 1025 and 96.9. I am talking with Reed Coverdale. He is a trucker, a gun hacker, which we talked about in the last segment. And if you miss any of the show, it's posted usually a day or two later to mattasher.com. He's also a podcast host and posts regularly to social media. In this uh, final radio segment, I want to just ask you, a handful of questions, and we'll just go from there. These are some things that I've noticed uh, trolling through your Twitter feed and wanted to ask you about. Let's uh, just pick one at random here. Did the world deserve John McAfee? The world? Uh, man, uh, I guess so. <laughs> so. So he's someone that I really did not know much about. Um, and I still don't know a ton about, I just, you know, very, uh, slightly knew about, knew about him in 2016, uh, cause I started paying attention after the, uh, the convention was over. Uh, but then obviously when he died this year, I started looking into him a lot more and when he got arrested also, uh, but I didn't realize, uh, what an animal he was <laughs> like, I, I, and I always knew he was rough, but. Um, I saw Patrick David's interview with him and then I started finding out more about his life and um, I'm not sure I like him, I guess. Like, I'm not really sure what to think about him. I mean, he's definitely pushed the Overton window in a beneficial direction in some ways, but as far as the actual guy goes, I don't really know what to think. And I've got close friends who hate him and like him. <laughs> so it's, it's just like a really divisive uh topic but i frankly don't even really know what i think about him like i and i think he's a a legend in his own right let's just put it that way um so um yeah i don't know i guess that's the best way to answer <laughs> he uh, he definitely from my view did a lot of good and, and and bad things one thing as you alluded to there that i think is certain is that even in these times when it seems like there is a concerted effort to domesticate human beings in mass he was definitely not domesticated that's for sure he's uh he's a purebred wild man <laughs> no doubt 
Another question. Why do you hate that big, beautiful border wall that was being built? Yeah, so I am fine with states deciding how they want to deal with their own border crisis. So if Texas wants to build a wall and they want a strict immigration policy, I think that that should be their right to do so. Um, same with New Mexico, Arizona, and California. But I really think that those states should be allowed to do what they see fit. So if California wants to allow people in, that's fine. And then if Texas doesn't want to allow people in, I think that's also fine. And then I think state by state, you know, as far as hiring goes, like that should, that should all be dealt with at the state level, preferably even more decentralized than that. I think that, you know, people should privately be able to employ whoever they want to or deal with that at, you know, their own level. But given that we have a state, I don't, think that the federal government should be subsidizing building a giant wall all the way across the southern border. Um, I don't think that that's effective in stopping illegal immigration. First of all, most, uh, most immigrants actually come here legally and then overstay their visas. They come on airplanes, they come in cars, come over the border legally for the most part, and then they just have stayed here forever. Um, I think that building a wall is going after a symptom instead of a root problem. I think the root problem is the war on drugs, destabilizing countries. Um, I, I'm not going to say it's fact, but it's very likely that we assassinated Haiti's president. Uh, and, you know, now we have a lot of Haitians on the border, a lot of weird stuff going on. We had the Syrian refugees several years ago. That was from destabilizing Syria, arming ISIS against Assad. Um, I just, but if, if we don't arm ISIS and the Taliban, who, who will, uh, you know, if somebody else does, then, um, that's their problem. And I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think that creating these problems in the first place and then trying to figure out how to deal with the symptoms is the right way. I think we should remove the root of the problem. So I think we shouldn't be arming ISIS if, Russia or something decided to switch sides and end up arming Al-Qaeda and ISIS or whatever, that's their prerogative. And, you know, they can do that, I guess, and we would have nothing to do with it. But to complain about the symptoms of a problem that we have caused is extremely hypocritical. So even if other countries fill the void and end up doing the same thing, I think we need to stop and then we can actually focus on fixing the problems we have here at home. I'm talking with Reed Coverdale, a trucker and podcaster, and we're just running through a number of the topics that I've seen you post on your social media feed, on the, on the Twitter. Uh, one of them is you seem to be obsessed with 9-11 lately. Uh, well, that's actually only been the last two or three days, um, but what... Uh, what triggered it is I was at a diner and there were these two truckers sitting next to me and they were talking about a bunch of different things. But then they got to 9-11 and uh, one of the guys was saying that no planes hit the World Trade Center. And so I know you introduced me as a 9-11 conspiracy denier, which is true in part, but I actually don't take the complete establishment um, narrative on 9-11. I think there was a lot of strange stuff that occurred on 9-11 that should be looked into more. But what happens is you have people come in with these absolutely ridiculous 
conspiracy theories that are completely ungrounded and off the wall. And I think that actually distracts from looking at the true problems. And this is not just 9-11. You have this with COVID, you have it with climate change, you have it with shootings. I mean, just across the board, people take these really hardline fringe stances that they can't back up with any evidence. And instead of just questioning the official narrative, they come up with their own narrative without proof. And I think that's what's bad. I think 9-11 is probably the worst example of how that has happened. Um, so I think people should question the official narrative of 9-11 and look into what possibly could have really happened. But don't give up one BS narrative for another. You know, don't don't just get captured by something because it's exciting and you don't have any reason to actually believe it or anything to actually back it up. I think that's a really interesting point. One of the things that tends to happen with alternative narratives is they attract a high variance in terms of the intellect, seriousness, craziness of the people who are willing to indulge them. So if you're looking at something and you're going, oh, well, I don't trust the official narrative, I'm going to, I'm going to decide that something else is going on, that that's going to attract both the people who are very wacky, and then the people who are extremely serious and not don't just easily buy into the establishment narratives. I guess in the middle you'd have, and here's maybe another one of those terms that you see on Twitter, is the midwit. So the midwit takes the establishment narrative, and then you have, I guess, the uh, the, the tails on either end who are going out and trying to decide what really happened. And so that does kind of nece necessarily pull in a lot of people who are on the fringes, not necessarily in a good way in terms of how they're approaching it intellectually. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I would say if you are a contrarian and you just automatically disbelieve everything you're told, then you are still letting the establishment tell you what's true because you are just automatically opposed. And I don't look at that as necessarily being better than automatically in agreement I think you should be independent and try to figure out what's true by looking at facts. Um, and I think the establishment mixes truth with lies. You know, I don't think everything they say is false. And I think that's purposeful because the closest you can get a lie to the truth, the easiest is going to sell and the, you know, the most it will hold up in court, uh, so to speak. And, uh, you know, so if you're just going to throw everything you hear out the window because it came from a non-trustworthy source, you are letting that non-trustworthy source dictate to you what truth is. And that's what I think is wrong with that approach. I think one measure of power in a society is the extent to which a group can drive a wedge between reality and their narrative and have that sustain itself. So if you have an organization that has a small amount of power, they could say that, you know, the number of people who showed up for a protest was 10 or 20% more than actually was there. But if you have a group that has a huge amount of power, they could 
look at a protest that was huge that had a million people and say, oh, a few thousand people showed up and then expect that that narrative would be not rejected or that they would be able to sustain that narrative in the, you know, in the face of, of possible documentary evidence otherwise. I, I don't know if people have always been as susceptible to brainwashing as they are now. It just seems that it's easier to get one message out there if you want it, uh, because back in the day you had a bunch of different newspapers and, you know, word would, um, word would, you know, spread more individually where now you have a very centralized system that can put out exactly what they want everyone to hear. And you don't even need to censor information you don't like anymore you just flood the market with useless information and then no one actually bothers to look into anything anymore so you've just kind of destroyed the critical thinking of the masses if it ever existed i think it did more than it does now one of the most interesting theories of uh, of guests that, that i've had on the podcast was vin armani who believes that we've now entered a dim age that uh, we have access to unlimited amounts of information and data and people's experiences from all over and evidence but at the same time maybe because we're overloaded with it or maybe just the dynamics of this particular era that information and logic and reason just doesn't seem to be going in. I'd love to talk more about that on the radio, but we're almost out of time here. Are you okay to stick around a little bit for the podcast-only version? Sure, I can hang out a few minutes. Great. We'll we'll do that, and maybe we'll get into some topics that we couldn't on the radio here because of their nature. But before we wrap up here on the radio, can you tell listeners about where they can find your podcast and other writings? Uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter at Reed Coverdale. And then on YouTube and uh, Odyssey and Anchor, I am the Naturalist Capitalist. You can find me uh, pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. Excellent. Reed, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show After Party, otherwise known as the Filter Podcast. I am talking with Reed Coverdale. We'll just pick right back up where we left off, maybe with a, a moment for you to respond to the idea of the dim age and then move on from there to one or two other things. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten to a point where we know so much that maybe there isn't a desire to know anymore. <laughs> you know, the, the, the idea that we that lack of access to information is what made people uninformed in the past has been completely disproven because we've made knowledge undesirable. Um, you know, I think knowledge is actually uncomfortable sometimes. And I, I really believe comfort is just the biggest threat to the, um, the excellence of humanity, you know, like it, 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 it it disincentivizes us from trying to push out of where we already are to try to conquer new things and understand new ideas. Uh, and more knowledge about subjects can lead us to conclusions we didn't want to have. And maybe back in the day, it was easier to hold a conclusion that you wanted to have because you didn't have as much information. And now that information exists and people don't want it. They just want to 
they want their narrative to be true. They want what they believe to be fact. And so they, they don't pursue finding out if it actually is true. Maybe. One of the things that people talk about is the cycle of what is it of, you know, of, uh, hard times make for tough men and then tough men make for good times and then good times make for soft men, which leads to, you know, hard times. Do you think that is kind of a natural cycle? Yeah, it seems to have been in the past. I wonder like what that lead. Yeah. I mean, it's scary now because we've reached a technological ability for good times. So you almost have to intentionally have the bad times through some type of conflict where in the past, it, you know, it could have just been famine or, uh, you know, some sort of natural disaster or people not being prepared for something because they got lazy and soft. But now like <laughs> to upend the civilization, it takes, you know, a, a serious conflict. So I don't know. I mean, I hope not, but it does seem to be the natural way of things in the past. So seems sort of inevitable for the future. Yeah, and it does seem maybe we're headed that way. Before we wrap up, perhaps on a a lighter note, one of the most interesting and fun things I've seen going on on Twitter, besides all the the good memes, in particular in the kind of liberty space, so to speak, is it was a fun little game of people posting profile pics of other prominent people in that movement and asking, are they a dom and a sub? Did you participate in that? I think it was just one guy posting it actually. It was the unicorn daddy. And I was I was posted in it, you know. Uh, and I thought it was funny. Um, but to my knowledge, he was the only maybe other people were doing it too, but he put mm. out like, a couple hundred of them or something. And I was one of the participants. Um, I don't know what I got voted most. I didn't even check, but <laughs> I, w- I was a member who was involved. I, I find that interesting because it's you know, talking politics, talking about your ideology or whatever, it's fine, it's important, but for any culture to find cohesion, there has to be more than just the thing you're railing against all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, you've got to, you got to have fun. I mean, that's why Tower Gang exists. That's why, as you know, a lot of my posts are very humorous. Some of them are just straight up jokes. Some of them aren't even political. And it's because, I mean, that's how you build a community. If you're just an autistic Lolbert who does nothing but talk about theory and political issues, people are going to get bored of you. I mean, you've got to be, you got to be exciting. You got to be funny. You got to be vicious. You got to be mean. You got to be, you got to be everything. You know, you're like all those extremes are what uh, you know, make life interesting and make someone you listen. I mean, if you think about anyone who's been interesting in the past, they weren't, um, they weren't boring. They weren't, um, milk toast. They weren't average. Like they're, if you think of George Carlin, like he was funny and he was biting and he was vicious or, you know, like, I don't know, David Chappelle, like, you know, any, any of these guys who leave a mark, they are not, just average milk toast boring people they say things that are funny and things that bite through the outer skin and make you think so I, I think that uh you know the the humor even the mindless humor sometimes like it just brings humanity and brings cohesion to a cause I think whatever happens in our particular timeline for for better and 
worse, there certainly seems to be a high emphasis put on things that are entertaining, at least for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people, people miss it. You know, they want to be, uh, they, 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 I don't know, they just want to, they want to laugh, you know, because it's, uh, there's so much going on now that doesn't make you want to laugh and makes you want to worry about things. But, you know, it, it's helpful to be a little bit of a nihilist because it, it just makes you able to shrug things off your shoulders and just say, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about this. I can control myself, but I can't control the outcome of everything around me. So, uh, you know, instead of crying, just laugh because <laughs> that'll get you through sometimes. Sure enough. Reed, thanks again for coming on. Hey, Matt, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.